Last week, there was a little flare-up of cases in Beijing, and immediately people started wearing masks more, taking temperatures at doors again. I think, you know, on one hand, it feels back to the way things were, and actually more so because people are revenge spending. That's Camden Haugi, an American restaurant owner living in Shanghai. Camden's got a growing group of restaurants, wine bars, and shops across the city, plus her own events agency there. Today on The Weekly, we catch up with Camden about her growth plans, we talk with Courier columnist Colin Nagy about the current state of hotels and why startups might want to steal newly available talent from the hospitality industry. And then we've got a bit of a behind-the-scenes look at this week's edition of our email newsletter. All that's coming up right now on The Courier Weekly. I'm Daniel Giacopelli, and this is the new podcast from Courier. We're kicking off this week's show in Shanghai. I first caught up with Camden Haugi smack dab in the middle of the pandemic a few months ago when her four locations, Egg, Bitter, Bird, and Kin, were closed, like pretty much every other restaurant in the world. But since then, as other restaurateurs are slowly dipping their toes back in the water, thinking about reopening, Camden's gone on an absolute growth path. When the world was pretty much locked down, she launched a completely new spot called Lucky Mart that serves konbini and highballs. And then a sixth spot called La Matcha that serves matcha drinks. And now she's launching another concept as well. I wanted to know what lessons she's learned during such a steep growth trajectory in a time when hospitality isn't exactly a hot industry to be in. Here's Camden. I arrived in Shanghai almost eight years ago now. I was working in London, actually at Saatchi and Saatchi in advertising, which I had fallen into because I had no idea what I wanted to do after graduating with a history of art degree. After working there for two years, I loved the company, I loved the people, but I really wanted a new challenge. And so I asked the company if they could send me anywhere else in their network. And they had an opportunity in Shanghai at the time. So I went over to Shanghai under the pretense of staying for three to six months, I'd say. But within the first month, I absolutely fell in love with the city and decided that I wanted to stay. So I knew that advertising wasn't forever for me. I'd always, always wanted to do food. And ever since I was very little, I used to pretend that my kitchen was a restaurant and I used to serve my family, asking my dad to like help me print out little menus from our computer, which was super new at that time. So I always, always had held space for hoping I could open a restaurant. But having grown up right outside New York City and living in London, I never thought it'd be possible just because those two cities are so competitive. They're so saturated and it takes so much experience and money to be able to open places there. And when I had arrived in Shanghai, there were so many more opportunities and open spaces for new kinds of Western or international dining. And, you know, when we last caught up, you had a certain number of restaurants and now you have even more restaurants. You keep opening up restaurants like once a month. It's like a shocking amount of growth. So what's the status of the empire right now? How many restaurants do you have? Oh, man. Luckily, it's more reasonable than it sounds just because some of them are smaller scale. When we last spoke, I had just opened Lucky Mart, which is a small convenient highball shop. So a little bar that focuses on highballs and Japanese snacks. And that was responding directly to the COVID situation, trying to create a small footprint space and focus on one product that's a value, but a hero product that people would get excited about. So following in the footsteps of that, a partner and I decided to open a little matcha stall called La Matcha, which is focusing just on matcha-based beverages. There's a huge habit here for people who drink milk tea or other fruit teas, different tea beverages every day, and no one is focusing on matcha. And 
in today's day and age, I feel so guilty saying this, but photogenic beverages and food rule the roost. And so this green drink is going to make it across everybody's, you know, screens and social media. And so we thought that this would be a good idea after seeing how well it's doing overseas in places like New York and LA. And so we opened that late April and yeah, it's going well so far. We have a little stall that's just outside of another restaurant and we're doing delivery and that's been going well. We're opening a second location, hopefully within the next couple months and doing a pop-up in another city in China very soon as well. Two weeks ago, opened another little place. This is actually, I can't say little, this is the biggest restaurant so far by square meter. This is a 200 square meter restaurant. And it's within a beautiful boutique working facility run by a group called Enkin, which renovates these gorgeous old factories and installs you know, smaller offices within that bigger space. And they wanted someone to come in and run their canteen for their workers, which has a gorgeous attached terrace, a roof garden that grows vegetables and herbs and things that we could use at the cafe, another roof terrace that's all turfed out for activities. So it was just too good to resist. And the deal itself was amazing. And so we went in and opened Maia, which means Rice Valley in Japanese. And we're focusing on modern East Asian food and rice-based beverages. So things like Mijo, Huangzhou, Sake, and Baijiu. So all beverages native to China and other places in East Asia that are currently underrepresented and not heroicized. I mean, that's incredible. Last time we caught up for the magazine, I asked you, you must have a really good layer of people managing all these things because you're growing this restaurant group and that must become even more important now, having really good managers for each of these things. And I know you also said you were launching a hospitality umbrella group itself to help manage all of this. Has that happened yet? Yes. So very excitingly, actually on the fifth anniversary of Egg itself, so on June 8th, Egg being the first restaurant that I opened, we did our first all-group meeting under Happy Place Hospitality Group umbrella. So very excited to say that we get to have a formal hospitality group now, I guess. I've made a few key core hires, which I'm thrilled about because hopefully it can help me cut out some of the more crucial roles of my job that I was doing that other people will do much better than I will when they can focus on them and also just creating more efficiencies in the back end. So I'm really excited to be able to have, you know, an umbrella group where we can promote all of the work we're doing across every venue in a more organic way. So centralizing social media, in addition to all the venues, social media, but also centralizing talent is super important from now on, just because it's become a lot harder to manage as a single person. What's the state of Shanghai right now in terms of reopening, you know, post-pandemic? Is everything back to normal, people shoulder to shoulder, lined up on the, uh, on the train and, you know, in restaurants? Everything is both back to normal and yet incredibly sensitive at the same time. One weekend, we're doing a huge food and beverage festival where we have 40,000 people walking down the streets and in this giant piazza outside of a, a mall slash shopping center. The next day, I'm flying on an airplane. There's absolutely no social distancing. All everyone has is their mask and a little QR code to show. So on one hand, things seem super normal. Then on the other hand, last week, there was a little flare-up of cases in Beijing. And immediately people started wearing masks more, taking temperatures at doors again. I think, you know, on one hand, it feels back to the way things were and actually more so because people are revenge spending in this way that's very helpful for our businesses. But on the other hand, we realize that, you know, the second that there are more cases, 
that are detected, people do start to retreat and people are sensible about the ways that they interact with people. So hopefully we can move on with no further cases because things are back to normal otherwise. But I think there is still some fragility there that people are sensitive to. Yeah, and, and you had mentioned before, during lockdown, you had to take the temperature of customers and staff and report it via an app. And you had, and every different district of Shanghai had kind of competing different policies of what you can and cannot do. Has that all ended? Can you just, is it like a free-for-all now in terms of restaurants, what you can do? It basically is a free-for-all. We don't have to take guest temperatures. We don't have to have social distancing in the venues. We don't have to restrict any I guess, ingredients or types of dishes that we serve. Although our servers are still wearing masks, just to be conscientious to our diners, to make them feel as though we are being as hygienic as possible. Everything else is pretty open, to be honest. I think only in the big central spaces, like if you enter a shopping center, they might still be taking temperatures and they might still ask you to wear a mask. But very loose, I would say. (laughs) Quite surprisingly back to normal. Next up, we're in the U.S. to catch up with Courier columnist Colin Nagy. Colin's also one of the founders and authors of an always excellent email newsletter called Why Is This Interesting? One of his recent editions really caught my eye. He featured Riley Brennan, a partner at Trucks VC, a venture capital firm focused on the transportation industry, who we also incidentally had on the Courier Daily a while back. And in the newsletter, Riley wrote about a road trip he took with his family across the U.S. They drove 3,000 miles during the pandemic, and learned a lot about the hospitality industry. So I thought we'd get Colin on to talk about what those lessons were. Yeah, so Riley wrote an interesting article, and it encapsulated a lot of sort of observations that I've been having as well. He basically went on a road trip across the U.S. with his family, and it was you know a family-related thing. They kind of had to do it. It was you know essential travel. And he wrote about, obviously, the masks and the precautions that they were taking. But the big interesting thing was how they really only felt safe interacting with sort of like the big established brands. When you get out of certain areas, New York, LA, etc., there's like no mask wearing in America, which is terrifying. And I don't think a lot of people have even seen this fact. But what Riley was saying is the big established brands are the ones that actually have a lot of the operational and safety protocols. So he almost had the opposite of like the all-American road trip experience, which is kind of sad, right? You want to go to the cool diner, you want to go to the roadside place. But instead, he wanted to be at the Holiday Inn, he wanted to be at the Starbucks, he wanted to be at these places that he knew were going to have the safety and operational protocols. And I think Starbucks, you would have never heard me say this, I've been the typical courier reader and wanted to support the small, interesting boutique coffee shop or the artisanal place, but because they temperature check their employees every day, because they have all of these safety protocols, because they've been able to operationalize all of the things to keep people safe, it seems like that brand has had like an acceleration in my mind in terms of somewhere I would want to go. Yeah, he mentioned in the piece that, you know, some of the key safety mechanisms of some of the big food brands he noticed were, one, you know, cashiers handle money, but those people are separate from those people who handle or transfer food to customers. You know, I think they've been great at mobile and online ordering, the procedures for that, even the drive-throughs at a Starbucks where they like kind of put things in something and then there's no direct hand-to-hand contact. There's a very granular level of operational 
sort of sophistication and the ability to do it that I actually think has a comforting factor. And I think it's just a, this new paradigm of these brands that might have potentially fallen out of favor with large swaths of the public. They might be finding new favor because of these decidedly unsexy operational things that add up to a positive impression. And he said in the piece that, you know, small off the map diners that you read about were either closed or generally had no safety protocols. Do you think, you know, we're saying like Starbucks could benefit from this because they have the bureaucratic means to enforce safety protocols across all of their locations, but can't individual diners just duplicate these protocols as well? I think that small businesses can, and I've seen great examples of small businesses that do this. The problem is, is it's just catch as catch can. It's very hard to know which ones do and which ones don't, right? You know, in no way am I saying don't go to small business because obviously you want to support small business. It's just, you know, when someone's going to that Starbucks, they know what experience they're going to get. It's not an ad hoc sort of thing. And I think that people can build this reputation with their customers as a small business just by having these really enforced standards over and over and over. And through repetition, you are creating that impression in someone's mind. So I guess my point is, is it's, it's almost defying a lot of the laws of marketing, right? It's no longer the beautiful sort of aesthetic and the, the plants and the kind of Kyle Chaka airspace aesthetic. It's actually the decidedly unsexy operational things that are that are making a brand stand out to me in being compelling and making me want to go there. Like Starbucks is an interesting brand, but I haven't really gone there since I was in high school and that was like the only option in where I lived. But it's funny to find this reversion. And I think Riley was astute to see that as well with a lot of retail. You just wrote a really great piece for Skift, our friends at Skift, about why companies might want to poach hospitality workers because they have a number of really interesting just skills that could be useful across different industries, right? Yeah, I really felt it was necessary to write this piece because with the column and skiff that I've been doing for six years, I've had the good fortune of coming across really, really talented people that I think are oftentimes unsung heroes. Because in a lot of ways, when they do their job right, it's invisible, right? You go to an incredible hotel everything's perfect. You know, the flowers are perfect. The bed is perfect. The presentation in the restaurant is perfect. When people do their job right, it's invisible. These soft skills are things that are underappreciated in the market. And I think what I was trying to write is hospitality has been decimated. You know, Hyatt, Hilton, all these people have laid a ton of people off. But the attributes that go into a great hotelier, you know, attention to detail, the ability to interface and have the emotional intelligence to handle lots of different situations, and also the soft diplomacy and all of this, it's hugely interesting and applicable to other industries. You look at maybe it's private banking or selling to high net worth individuals or overhauling the customer service experience in a place or examining every touch point that a brand interfaces with a consumer. When you look at all of this stuff, you know, the hospitality mindset and these attributes are really, really incredible for that. So in some ways, what I wrote was a love letter to the industry and how much I really care and appreciate for all these people and their work and also trying to create the desire for other industries to, you know, hire them. So I wish they would send that article with their resume, you know, when, when they're applying for something. But yeah, that was the reason I wrote it. Is there any evidence on your end this is actually happening yet? 
I've had a lot of anecdotal examples of people working in industries that have a lot of interaction with clients, whether this is sales, whether this is customer experience, saying that they've had great examples or great experiences hiring people from hospitality. So I've heard like anecdotal stories, but I think that we're in the first innings of this. And I'm just really hoping that other industries that are not as affected or are creating growth will look to tap some of these people in. Because hotelier that worked at an iconic hotel, so much of that is applicable to having to interface with humans and understand there's things that people say, and then there's the unsaid thing. There's the art of omotenashi, you know, thoughtful anticipation, the Japanese word for like the sort of addressing things before they need to be addressed. When people do this stuff well, uh, it really creates a, a wonderful experience. And this could be in retail, in customer service, in banking, in sales. There's lots of things where the hospitality industry talent and stars can be good. And, you know, when we last caught up on the uh, the Courier Daily podcast a couple of weeks back, I mean, we talked about reopenings of hotels, what that might look like. Now, obviously, hotels are reopening. I mean, here in the UK, at least on the 4th of July, they're allowed to reopen hospitality industry businesses from, you know, restaurants and bars to hotels. Do you think any of the things you predicted back then will come true in terms of safety protocols or in terms of, you know, prices, for instance? I'm just observing some of the reopenings here in the States, and I've actually been pleasantly surprised. Some of the big iconic hotels and restaurants, I've been hearing very good things. I think it requires a lot to make this entire thing, social distancing, seem not like a big deal. The art here is doing a lot of the safety protocols, the social distancing, all of the hidden things, and, and making it seem invisible, right? And so I've heard stories of, you know, the Breakers in Palm Beach, which is kind of a iconic hotel. Obviously, they've done all these things in terms of protocols, but the anecdotes are it doesn't feel obtrusive. It feels like it's integrated into the experience and it's not too over the top because you want to feel like you're having this reemergence into hospitality. You don't want to feel like you're checking into like a clinic or, you know, or a viral ward or something like that. So a sterile Swiss sanitarium or something like that. Yeah, there's a finesse that's required. So getting the balance of the diligence, the operations right, also making this integrated in a way that's not over the top. I really think that on the luxury side of the market, people are probably going to be opting for badge value. People are going to be opting for the big known names. I think Claridge's, you know, it's like that hotel got through the blitz. You know, that hotel has been through all of these trials and tribulations. And I think that I was hardened to see how they took in all the, the frontline responders. But some of these big iconic names, I think, are the ones that are going to have the trust for people to start coming back to. I and mean, this is something that I'm kind of ruminating on writing about in the next couple of weeks. And finally, on the Curry Weekly today, we're going to check in on what's been going on in our weekly email newsletter. To walk us through some of the stories you need to know is our features editor, John Sunyer, who joins us now. John, you know, we talked about everything from fashion to forest bathing in this week's edition, right? Correct. It's a very diverse lineup this week. Very eclectic. Yeah. With regards to fashion, we've obviously been reporting on it quite a lot in the past two or three months. The industry generally is undergoing a huge amount of change. 
But one kind of new little subtrend we've been thinking about the past couple of weeks is the idea of a two-tier system being developed in the fashion world. And what that means is the kinds of smaller, independent, slightly more sustainable brands that we love covering are developing a new business model based on the idea of only producing clothes when they know the exact demand for that piece of clothing. The model is brilliant. It really works for kind of smaller, independent, more sustainable brands. But it does require two things from customers. The first of which is a lot more patience. So, yeah, you see this product online, you log on, you say, yeah, I want that in a size medium, blah, blah, blah. And then you might have to wait a month or two to see if it passes the test and it actually gets manufactured. And then the second thing is a slightly higher price point. Of course, with economies of scale being wiped out slightly and brands only producing what there's demand for, the price point needs to be a lot higher. So kind of we'll wait to see if this model actually takes off. The idea of this two-tier system for fashion will actually take off. But it's something that's definitely quite exciting for a lot of small brands at the moment. It does also mean, however, that the kind of department store level of clothing is going to disappear forever. And this is something we've heard from multiple brands over the past few weeks. Elsewhere in the weekly, we looked at the macro picture of Black-owned businesses, which is really fascinating because, you know, we've been looking at a micro-scale look at businesses owned by Black entrepreneurs in the past couple of weeks. You know, their successes, their struggles, but the macro picture, when you take a step back, is fascinating. The National Bureau of Economic Research put out a report earlier in this month about just how vicious COVID was on small businesses full stop. 3.3 million small business owners just evaporated basically from February to April. But when you look at the same kind of drop in African-American owned businesses, it was 41% drop as opposed to the 22% for all businesses. So black owned businesses had the largest plunge of any demographic group during the pandemic in those two months. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of as though we need to give listeners a trigger warning here. (laughs) And it's not only Black-owned businesses that are really suffering. I mean, we went stat-heavy in this piece. Latino business owners have dropped by 32%, Asian business owners by 26%, and also female-owned businesses by 25%. So not all businesses are equal in the eyes of COVID-19 which is you know, hugely upsetting. Yeah, and there are a few reasons for why that was. I mean, number one was that a lot of Black-owned businesses aren't operating in industries that were considered, quote-unquote, essential during the pandemic. So lots of them weren't allowed to be open, and thus they were destroyed. And, you know, obviously there are other institutional systemic racism issues at play as well, insofar that a lot of Black-owned businesses don't have the access to small business loans in the same way that white-owned businesses do. It's harder to get bank loans if you're a Black person, just full stop, because of institutional racism. So there's lots of things going on there. But it is, in a quite positive note, it's great to see a lot of these initiatives taking off to support Black-owned businesses, including one that you know that we're launching, the Courier Fresh Fund that we announced a couple weeks ago. More details on that, as we said, a couple weeks ago, coming up in early July. And finally, we ran a piece about coffee shop economics. It's kind of well known, you know, for example, in London alone, there's been a 700% rise in the number of independent coffee shops in the past decade. However, in the past 12 months, only 44 independent coffee shops have opened in the whole of the UK. So things were hugely slowing down then. And then obviously COVID-19 hit. We checked in with a few people about what that has meant for the future of the coffee industry. Yeah, I know you checked in with Jess Elliott Dennison up in Edinburgh, right? She was our former startup diarist a couple, I guess it was last year, maybe the year before. Yeah, she owns a really cool space called 27 Elliott's in Edinburgh. It's a cafe slash restaurant. 
Since COVID-19, she's already moved away from a kind of traditional cafe-style space. And she told us, moving forwards, it's going to be simply impossible to continue with, like, eight tables in a coffee shop and people having a flat white and spending an hour and a half with their laptop. She says that is just not going to happen moving forwards. So she's already moving towards, she calls it kind of like a canteen-style takeaway model, where the viewers, it's kind of like a kind of canteen setup as you approach the store, everything's on sale. Ideally, people buy something and walk away straight away, or they might sit down for 10 minutes, but no more than that. And she says just simply the traditional cafe model just cannot continue how it is at the moment. Yeah, I like it. Well, I don't like the quote she ends on, but it's kind of a, it's a funny quote. She said, the thought of opening a hospitality business right now in London, especially, makes me feel sick. You know, that kind of says it in a nutshell. So while we have been in an age of kind of peak flat white, as some people call it, that may be about to end. So yeah, we're going to be keeping an eye closely on what independent coffee shop owners are doing in the next kind of three to six months. And that's all for the Curry Weekly this week. If you've got any questions, comments, or feedback about anything at all, you can reach me at daniel at couriermedia.co. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. The Curry Weekly is back again next Friday.